May it please the court. Good morning. My name is uh, James Nelson. I represent uh, James Bennett in this matter before the court. Um, I would re request to reserve uh, four minutes for rebuttal. This matter comes before the court uh, following a conviction, following a jury trial for a violation of 21 U.S.C. 841B1C, which was a lesser included offense. Uh, Mr. Bennett was initially charged with a violation of 21 U.S.C. 841B1A and provided notice of enhancement under 21 U.S.C. 851, which uh, created a mandatory minimum of 15 years for Mr. Bennett. Um, <clears throat> following indictment, uh, discovery was received and reviewed with Mr. Bennett. Mr. Bennett uh, determined who he believed um, the government's um, cooperators or, or persons that were alleging that he was involved in a conspiracy, uh, the witnesses would be. Um, he was adamant that he was not involved in the conspiracy as alleged in the indictment. Uh, through the review of discovery and discussions, uh, he determined that uh, he wanted to go to trial in this matter. Prior to trial, the government offered a plea agreement wherein Mr. Bennett uh, would plead to a violation of uh, 21 U.S.C. 841B1A. The government would agree to dismiss the 851 notice and the government would agree to cap their sentencing recommendation at 196 months. This would create a mandatory minimum of 10 years uh, for Mr. Bennett, and he denied that he was involved in the conspiracy uh, that would require a 10-year mandatory minimum sentence. Um, he rejected the plea agreement, and he proceeded to trial. Uh, he denied that he was involved with Mr. Crook and Mrs. Erdman, and those were the two main cooperating witnesses at trial. Uh, Counsel, just to you going through and reciting to us much of what we can read from the brief, but um, as you went down that list, you mentioned his desire to go to trial and his uh, pursuit of that. Why didn't that? Um, why wasn't that a proper basis for denial of acceptance of responsibility? Well, the issue that. Uh, that he had with respect to denial of acceptance was he was put in a position where he either had to admit to a greater offense that he denied involvement in or remain silent and go to trial. So he elected to remain silent and go to trial. Uh, he was sort of put into a trick bag where he either had to agree that he was involved with uh, Krista Erdman, which he adamantly denied, and, uh, and Mr. Crook, which he adamantly denied, to uh, receive acceptance or essentially perjure himself by entering into a plea that he couldn't make a factual basis for, or go to trial and deny that he was involved with those two people. And um, what ultimately happened was he was convicted of the lesser included offense, which wasn't, in our opinion, wasn't even the, the offense that was charged in the indictment. So with respect to the acceptance of responsibility, he effectively went to trial on a charge that he denied having been involved in, was convicted of a, of a separate conspiracy and was denied acceptance of responsibility because he didn't agree to plead guilty for a charge that he wasn't convicted of. 
During the course of the testimony, the, 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 uh, there was reams and reams of testimony about weights, quantities. Uh, Ms. Erdman tried to put all sorts of weight Still, on. I, I guess I'm waiting to hear how this takes your case out of uh, the sphere of cases where we say if you put the government to its proof, uh, which is what occurred here, um, uh, the district court is within its discretion to deny well, the, because the responsibility, because he wasn't convicted of the conspiracy that he was charged with, he wasn't conv convicted of a B1A. He was convicted of a B1C, and the the proof at trial suggests that he was convicted of uh, small quantity distribution uh, for teeners, eight balls, possibly up to an ounce. When the conspiracy that he was charged with was with, but Ms. doesn't Ruben. that rely on your ability to be successful in? saying that this should have been a multi-conspiracy in, uh, instead of a single conspiracy um, conviction? I'm sorry? Doesn't that rely on your uh, contention that there should have been an instruction for multiple conspiracies? Yeah, I think that does rely on the contention that there should have been. We believe there should have been a, uh, an instruction for multiple conspiracies because we believe there was multiple conspiracies. And the evidence suggests that there was multiple conspiracies. Uh, you've got Kenneth Crook and Krista Erdman that are moving 20, 25, 30 kilos at a time from Dallas, Kansas City, into, uh, into Des Moines. You've got um, a multitude of people that Mrs. Erdman was associating with that Mr. Bennett was not associating with. The warrants were executed on Kenneth Crook and Krista Erdman in October of 2021. I'd, I'd like to come back to sure. Chief Judge Smith's first question. Um, seems to me he, you, t you talk about he'd have to perjure himself to accept the plea agreement. Well, no, he, he, asked, he, can, he, can, ex he can accept the plea agreement, and then the government will make its, its showing at the change of plea hearing uh, on a factual basis, and he, de he denies the quantity. And now the court can reject the plea agreement. And, and now, he, now he, he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't have this uh, acceptance taint. He's done what he could, but he didn't do that because he really didn't want to plead. Well, what you're saying is he could have gone in, uh, attempted to enter a plea to a B1A, denied that he had, uh, was responsible well, you, for a you, sufficient you, you, amount. You triggered this, my question, by using the, the word perjure. I mean, accepting a plea agreement is not committing perjury. Perjury well, would have to be in court, wouldn't it? Right. For him to, to go in and enter a plea of guilty to this offense that, they, that the government wished for him to plead to, he would have to make factual basis. He doesn't. The government does. He still has to admit and agree that the factual Am basis... Am I right? The government has to make the factual basis, and then the, then the court would ask him, you know, do you agree with that? I believe under Rule 11 for a defendant to enter a plea, he has to either adopt and agree that the factual basis is accurate, that he committed the offense. Do you have a case where, where this, where just a quantity disagreement uh, that the defendant chose to go to trial and the, because of a quantity disagreement and then said, uh, well, you know, I, I still accept. I still accepted responsibility. I, I do not, I did not locate that case, but I can certainly. I think that, well, I wouldn't say never, but <laughs> I don't know of any. Well, well, if your man had gone to trial and said in the trial, we agree that 
he was involved in a drug conspiracy, but it was only at the low quantity level of B1C. And the government is trying to increase the offense to a B1A. And that's why we're here for trial, because we don't think they can prove anything more than our low-level involvement. Then you'd have a stronger argument, wouldn't you, for acceptance? But as I understand it, your man said at the trial, I'm totally innocent. He actually didn't say anything at trial. He remained silent. Well, but I mean, the defense was, we're in a, right. my guy is innocent, not my guy's guilty of the B1C. Well, the defense was that he was involved with Erdman and Crook. And that was the, the offense that was charged in the conspiracy He wasn't count. a conspirator. In that conspiracy which was charged. But he wasn't charged he with the separate conspiracy. conspiracy. Did he? I mean, remaining silence, it's, it's the defense that... The, it's what defense counsel argued to the, to the court and the jury. I'm sorry. Well, what, what elements of the crime did he admit at trial? He didn't admit any elements of the crime. Right. He, he remained silent. the actual basis of the, of the charge. With respect to the conspiracy that was charged. Well, he didn't, but no, you just said he didn't admit anything. I mean, on appeal, you say, well, he really was only, a, only contesting the, the subsection of the statute he was charged with, but I'll bet the jury wasn't told that by defense counsel. We did not tell the jury that he was only, uh, that's correct, we didn't tell the jury that we were only contesting the uh, quantity assessments because we were actually contesting his involvement with Erdman and Crook generally. He contested all the factual elements of the charge at trial. He contested that he was involved with Crook and Erdman, but he didn't deny that he was... Uh, he didn't test. He, he didn't say exactly. anything. He, he didn't, didn't say he, anything. He didn't affirmatively deny anything, correct. Cross-examined those two like man, right? And, you know, this, this is a manufactured uh, reconstruction of the, of the trial. Well, the problem is, as the case comes to us, the jury found that he was in the charge conspiracy. And so now you're down to arguing... Right. What's a quantity dispute, and you didn't admit at the trial to the lower quantity, so. Correct. He was, he was convicted of the lesser included offense of B1C. But of the charged conspiracy. Of the charged conspiracy in the indictment, correct. Which is what was denied at the trial, so that's where your problem is on right. acceptance. But back to the quantity issue, I, I want to address acquitted conduct. I know that, that uh, that's something that was significant in the, in the sentencing court's um, determinations relating to uh, the presumptively reasonable sentence. There was a significant disparity between where the uh, court determined was presumptively reasonable and uh, where the jury verdict determined was presumptively reasonable. And I think the, the distinction in presumptive reasonableness um, leads to a conclusion that uh, the quantity is an element of the offense, should be determined by the jury, and that's what should determine whether or not uh, the uh, the base offense level um, is presumptively reasonable. I'm out of time uh, as far as getting into my rebuttal time here, but I want to address this a little bit more because uh, under 1B1.3, the language uh, is that relevant conduct does not include um, Conduct not formally charged or that's not an element of the offense of conviction is not included in relevant conduct. The elements of, of 841 B1A, B, and C include quantity. So to consider quantity as part of relevant conduct is contrary to the language of 
uh, of B1, uh, 1B1.3. And consistently, the Supreme Court has determined that all elements of a, of a criminal offense must be determined by a jury. So what you have is a situation where you've got an element of the offense that shouldn't be considered as relevant conduct based on the language of relevant conduct that is considered for relevant conduct and increases the presumptive reasonableness of the sentence. Our position is that because of that scenario, because of the fact that it increases the presumptive reasonableness and that sentences are attached to the presumptive reasonableness, it's a, it's a fact that should be determined by a jury and not the judge in determining what the base offense level should be. Well, it sounds like you're making a, a good argument on what might become the law, but in, in terms of what current Eighth Circuit law is, what's your best case that, that we should reverse as well, consistent I think, with your argument? I think that uh, the cases that were cited by the government can be distinguished. First of all, there's not such a distinction in the base offense level and the, uh, the two base offense levels of where uh, the, the court ended up and where the, court, where the jury verdict um, should have put it. In other words, in this case, you go from a 22 to a 38, you go 16 offense levels based on judicial determinations. The other issue is I don't think that this court has directly uh, addressed the 1B1.3 language issue. You, you don't have a case? I don't have a case, Judge, no. Okay. Thank you. I'll reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Mr. Kurt. May it please the court. My name is Adam Kurt, and I represent the United States. I was co-counsel at trial in this matter, and I authored the brief before your honors. Uh, this was a textbook conspiracy that was presented to the jury. We showed that the defendant conspired with multiple other persons to leave the state and transport kilos of methamphetamine back to Des Moines over and over again. And we showed not only that he went out of state along with his partner to obtain it from a cartel-linked source, but we showed that he brought it back here to Des Moines and that he distributed it from there. We showed the full overarching conspiracy here, where he obtained it, who he obtained it with, and how he went about disposing of it before he started his cycle over and over again. This is not a case that relied upon the two cooperators that the government uh, put forth at trial. This is a case where the defendant's own words and his messages on Facebook and other forums indicate his deep, deep involvement with all levels of this conspiracy. With respect to some of the questions that this court had uh, on acceptance of responsibility, as the court knows, the burden is on the defendant to prove that he clearly accepted responsibility for his offense. The burden is on him. You're saying you didn't rely on the conspirators for the quantity, ultimate quantity determination at sentencing? We did in part, certainly, Your Honor. They, they were part. It would be essential to the uptick in the quantity, right? Their testimony. Their testimony was certainly a, a substantial piece, Your Honor. Uh, what I'm saying to the court is that their testimony did not stand alone. Their testimony was corroborated by the defendant's own words. They were corroborated by, uh, for example, some monies that moved uh, from Kenneth Crook via Western Union to the co-conspirator 
um, and one of the testifying cooperators, a Kenneth Crook, um, and uh, amongst other things, Your Honor. So yes, absolutely, in part we did. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why these cooperators were uh, determined by the jury to be credible and, and are credible and why Judge Gritzner determined the quantity at sentencing uh, as he is required to. When you say the jury found them credible, I, there wasn't a special verdict, was there? You're, you're inferring that from the guilt. I, I am inferring that from the, the guilt, Your Honor, and, and I'm certain... If they found them 100% credible, it, it would be hard to uh, uh, explain the, the um, failure to convict of the greater charge. I, I think... I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the dilemma, dilemma on this record. It, it is, Your Honor. And I'll be question is, what do we do with, do about it? Right. And, and to be completely candid, the government was very surprised at the special verdict form. Um, certainly, the defense, the appellant, the verdict form didn't didn't go to credibility. It, absolutely. Quantity. Right. Okay. And, and, and just as as the district court recognized, um, it, it was the district court's words are it's extraordinary. It's very. Uh, difficult to know how the jury approached the quantity issue. And that's correct. Uh, we don't know. Uh, all we know from that jury special interrogatory and the verdict as a whole is that they found that James Bennett was guilty of conspiring with other persons known and unknown to distribute and conspired to distribute methamphetamine from March to October of 2021. That's what we know from the verdict. What we know, and the only thing we know, from the special interrogatory is that at least one of those 12 jurors decided that they didn't believe beyond a reasonable doubt the higher quantities. That's all we know. We can't read into it further. It would be reckless to read into it further as to did they decide that there was a different conspiracy here. That, that is um, troubled waters, and I'm not going to speculate. Certainly, I have different viewpoints as to how maybe um, the jurors came up with that decision. Uh, but I will um, keep myself from speculating on that. With respect to the acceptance of responsibility, um, the, the district court's determination here is, is reviewed for clear error. And the district court found, quote, there was a challenge to the defendant's involvement in the conspiracy at all. It was not just a situation of admitting being part of a conspiracy, but cha challenging his acknowledgement of drug quantities, end quote. That finding by the district court is correct, and it's entire, entitled to deference. plain error review on this issue? Excuse me, Your Honor? I thought I heard you say it's plain error review on this issue. Uh, clear error. Okay. I, if I misspoke, I apologize. No, I... It's clear error, Your Honor. And, and that finding by the district court, and this is a factual, in, in, uh, factually intensive uh, decision, uh, it's entitled to deference. The denial of acceptance responsibility by the district court was not clearly erroneous. Frankly, it wasn't close. This court has held, and I'm referring to the Mons case and the Arias case that I cited in my brief, that a defendant who proceeds to trial and presents a defense that denies factual guilt does not clearly demonstrate acceptance responsibility. And that is exactly the facts before this court. The defendant denied factual guilt at trial. He didn't, he didn't admit a single element for the jury. He did not tell the jury, convict me of conspiracy, but acquit me of the quantities. Uh, he strenuously argued that the government failed to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt and that the jury should acquit him entirely. That is the facts. That is how this trial played out. It could have been different if he had fallen on his proverbial sword 
but he did not. Acceptance of responsibility was correctly denied. With regard to the, the issue that was touched on towards the end of, of Mr. Nelson's argument uh, about the district court finding a higher quantity than what the jury found unanimously and beyond a reasonable doubt at trial, uh, that argument is foreclosed by this circuit's precedent. I'm re referring to the Webb and Ramirez-Maldonado cases that clearly indicate that the district court may impose a sentence based upon drug quantity um, that is greater than that found by the jury, so long as the sentence doesn't exceed the statutory maximum. Is, is it pending before the Supreme Court in the case where certiorari was granted? I know it's a hot button issue. Not to my knowledge, Your Honor. I, I, I haven't researched that. Not to my knowledge, Your Honor. Uh, but regardless, this panel is 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 bound by the the circuit precedent, and it's clearly uh, the argument is clearly foreclosed at this time. Uh, one side note on that issue, um, you know, I was thinking to myself as, as I was sitting at council table. Well, what if the government had chosen to exercise its discretion? Uh, for one reason or another, and uh, indicted Mr. Bennett on a B1C quantity only because there's no mandatory minimum. Uh, and if the government had chosen that, that certainly would have been a benefit uh, to Mr. Bennett. And sometimes the government does choose to do that for defendants, even though the quantities are substantially higher than the mandatory minimums require. Um, is the government then bound at sentencing to only attributing 50 grams? Uh, is the court bound then at sentencing because the government has exercised its discretion in what it believes is in the best interest of the public? If Judge Richard Arnold would say yes, we, we, had, we had that debate uh, in bank. And, and so I, I raised the question because certainly the government would be less apt uh, if it's not entitled to show at sentencing the full course of the conduct. Uh, less apt to then give a defendant early on the benefit of the doubt and not charge a mandatory minimum. And so a rule that would restrict in the way that the defense is advocating could actually be uh, detrimental to defendants uh, going forward. With regard to the reasonableness of the sentences, Your Honor, the court is very familiar with the standard here. Uh, district court's uh, decision here was below the advisory guideline range. The appellant is not, in my understanding, suggesting that the level 38 is not supported by a preponderance of the evidence standard, but rather simply that the court shouldn't have been able to do that at all. And a sentence below the guidelines, this court has said it's nearly inconceivable that a sentence below the guidelines would be so high as to be substantively unreasonable. This is not that case. Um, the district court did not commit any error during the sentencing process. The district court didn't consider any factors that it should not have considered. The district court did not fail to consider any factors that it should have considered. And so this is a, an argument that boils down to the district court weighed the appropriate factors, but I don't like the way that, they, that the district court weighed them. That's the argument. And there's wide latitude for a district court to assign certain factors different weights, and that's what happened here. The factors support a 300-month sentence, a below-the-guidelines 300-month sentence. We have over 100 kilos of methamphetamine that was attributed to the defendant. 
It spanned a large portion of 2021. He transported, went out of state, transported carloads of methamphetamine back, and he did it over and over again. And the defendant is not, uh, this is not his first rodeo, so to speak. He has a fairly lengthy criminal history, uh, which placed him at a criminal history five. It would have been higher, but some of it was even more dated. Um, With respect to, you know, any mitigating factors, I think the district court took those into account. And that was one of the reasons that the district court gave a below-the-guideline sentence here. This is not the nearly inconceivable case where a below-the-guideline sentence is substantively unreasonable. With respect to some of the other arguments, Your Honor, um, I know the defendant... You're talking about the arguments in the brief or the arguments this morning? Uh, the arguments in the brief, Your Honor, and I'm happy to... All right, you, you're opening them all up for rebuttal, then. Well, I'm happy to answer any questions that the court might have about any of the issues that uh, Mr. Nelson raised or any issues that the court's um, particularly uh, interested in at this time. And if not, I'm happy to um, yield my additional time and rest on my briefs for the remaining issues. I see none. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mr. Kern. Mr. Nelson? The entirety of, uh, <clears throat> of these issues relies largely upon the credibility of, of both Crook and Erdman. And uh, the, the verdict that was returned by the jury clearly rejects uh, their credibility um, as it relates to um, these issues. Uh, I want to address very briefly in response to the government um, the The quantity issue again, and I know that uh, you had asked Judge Loken if if uh, if this uh, this acquitted conduct issue is in front of the Supreme Court. It hasn't been taken up by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has indicated that they uh, are going to wait for the uh, for the Sentencing Guideline Commission to act on it. And if they don't, it appears that they may be taking it up. Uh, They issued an actual opinion in a cert denial in United States versus uh, McClinton. Uh, earlier this year, suggesting that this is something that they need to take a look at. And the basis for uh, why they want to take a look at it is because it is a denial of the uh, right to a jury trial to sentence defendants far in excess of the actual verdict uh, that is uh, returned. So we would ask the court to take into consideration the fact that the the, the Supreme Court may be looking at the issue. And also, I think that the the facts of this case are distinguishable from any other uh, any arguments are distinguishable from any other um, case that's been before the Eighth Circuit on that issue. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Nelson.